And now, coming to you live from the Gershwin Room, after a long, long time, it's Jonathan Strahan and Gary K. Wolf on the Coot Street Podcast. Oh, and, and, and we, we agreed, dear listeners, we agreed beforehand that this is going to be the Ennui Podcast. This is going to be the podcast for having reached 270 that we can't imagine we have anything useful to say to each other anymore. And yet, and yet, and yet, I mean, and yet, and yet, I mean, part of me kind of feels like you could actually splice this episode together out of previous episodes and you'd never be sure if anybody knew. Uh... I'm tempted to say you could do that with a lot of science fiction and fantasy novels, but I probably shouldn't say that. Well, but, well that, <laughs> actually, you see, now what you've done is you've actually touched on something that people are kind of like, well, actually, I'd be interested to see if you could actually do that, Gary. You know, does, does that novel by so-and-so actually add up to this? Is it, is it another soulless piece of fanfic? I mean, who knows? Well, first of all, fanfic doesn't necessarily need to be soulless. As a matter of fact, you can make the argument that fanfic, by definition, is the most soulful kind of fiction there is. It comes out of sheer passion and sheer love for the kind of fiction that you admire and and wanting to recreate it. I actually agree 100% when you're talking about fanfic written by fans for fans. Yeah. I'm less convinced about uh, commercial spin-offs that are created uh, simply for a paycheck to fill a perceived market niche. I don't think that's fanfic. I think that's cynical franchise fiction, which is not the same thing. Um, but but it kind of looked similar, Gary? Um, I'm not sure. I think there, there are various kinds of, shall we say, tribute fictions or imitative sure. fiction. Or, uh, and, and, and they all have different aesthetics. For example, some friends of ours uh, and some very well-known... Uh, science fiction writers have written novelizations of Star Trek or of the X Files movie, which which Liz handed. Or now, a novelization is essentially a celebration of something that that it, we don't expect to hear the author's voice in it very much. Um, I think the kind of franchise fiction you're talking about is an attempt to to take an author who has has got a very identifiable style and. Uh, and, and technique and imaginative structure. Let's say Arthur C. Clarke, because let's be honest, there have been more Arthur C. Clarke sequels and continuations, <clears throat> various other things, than probably any other modern writer. And the job there is to recreate the sense of reading Arthur C. Clarke. Um, fan fiction, it seems to me, uh, not that I've read enough of it to speak knowledgeably, uh, it's just saying, I like this so much, I want more of it, and I can't get more of it, so I'm writing more of it. i got to say, I mean, I don't read fan fiction. My wife and my daughter, one of my daughters do, and they love mm-hmm. fan fiction. And I can, okay, I can picture a time in my life when I absolutely would have loved it. And this is not in any way a reductive or a critical thing about it, but there's a time when maybe, I don't know, if I was in my, in my teens and you had delivered... Uh, more Starship Troopers, you know, the further adventures of, I probably would have gone, I'll have a go at that. That could be huge fun. Why not? You know, and actually, I have to say, some of my, not, no, I have to be careful. Some of my disappointments in reading 
franchise fiction have been when it's actually failed that test. I mean, um, I don't doubt there are really good good examples. And actually, in the Clark field, I know the Paul Preuss books that, that were written back in the must have been the 90s or the late 80s or something. Oh, yeah. Were, were really, really well uh, thought of by people who loved Clark a lot. Uh-huh. Um, but I remember the when the Killer Bees wrote their their foundation books. You know, I remember being not enthused by what they'd written. You know, I had to I, I, I had a dual reaction to that, and and, and I, I don't think we can quite put you know Barrett and, and, and Bryn and Benford in. I think the Killer Bees thing was a construct of the. You know, 80s and 90s, because those novels are very different from one another. My sense was that no, none of these really add anything uh, substantial to the experience of Asimov. They don't create, they don't recreate the experience of reading Asimov. But on a sentence by sentence level, sentence by sentence level, almost all of them, all three of them that I read, were better written than Asimov would have done. Well, see, okay, Orson Scott Card wrote a terrific. Um, Isaac Asimov tribute novella. Uh, mm-hmm. Martin Greenberg, the late Martin Greenberg, put together a book called Foundations Friends. It's one of these right. tribute anthologies which, frankly, by all reasonable expectations, shouldn't be particularly compelling or particularly good. Um, and yet, that book featured a number of excellent stories, and the card story really was a great example of something that came after which commented back on. And I guess that there, there's sort of these two kind of types. There's probably far more I'm being... I'm making up as I go along, so it's oh, going to yeah. miss obvious th- things. There are th- those things which are continuations and... Uh, ex- ex- you know, where the work is being extended because of the, if, the genuine love of the, the, the writer, whether they be professional or, or not, or paid or not. Uh, mm. but, uh, th- that's why they do it, you know. So they, they can't help themselves. They're in love with the work. They want to do it. Uh, I genuinely think that that is the motivation behind the new book that's coming out in May from Steve Baxter and Al Reynolds. The Arthur, their Arthur C. Clarke uh, follow-on from a meeting with Medusa. I think that's, that comes from passion and all that kind of thing. Yeah. Uh, I suspect that there was a strong element of passion in the uh, Benford Bear Bryn trio. And there are others where you think, well, it's for somebody doing a job or work, and I can understand that too. What I find interesting is, though, you go through these periods where potentially you get a lot of commentary back. I mean, we are in a year that is going to be one of the great commenting back on Lovecraft years. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't know if you've noticed this, but there's at least three major works coming out in 2016 that are direct commentaries on Lovecraft and his monocultural view of the world. Because well, the one I've yeah. so far is, is Victor Laval's The Ballad of Black Tom, which is very clever. It's a very kind of metafictional rewriting of the horror at Red Hook from the point of view of a young African-American in the midst of the story. Of course, it was not... If he was in the Lovecraft story at all, and I didn't go, didn't go back and check, he was one of those invisible... Uh, thugs on the street that that, that Lovecraft wrote about. So this is this is an attempt to, uh, I think, I think it. I, I don't think it's necessarily related to the whole world fantasy uh, no. debate or whether you know the Lovecraft image should be there. But I think there is a kind of clever movement going on, and you can tell me about the other books that I don't know about as soon as I finish this thought. 
that there's got to be some way to make Lovecraft entertaining and satirize him at the same time, to undercut what he does while celebrating what he does. Wow. Does that make I, sense? I, well, sure. I, I think there's two things that go on, and, and I'll give you the other examples in a minute. And I think it happens in the Victor Laval, which I've been reading, and it's terrific. Um, mm-hmm. I think there's a desire to explain what's popular and enduring about the Lovecraft mythos and to expand the, ra- the, the, the portrayal of the kinds of people who are involved in that world. You know, you get the Ballad of Black Tom, which is set uh, back in the, what, the 40s or 50s. In the 20s, actually. Yeah. In the 20s. And is um, basically Lovecraft from, from a African-American viewpoint. Yeah. Now, the same character. As, as you know, Bob, major uh, novelist Matt Ruff has done exactly the same thing in his, mm-hmm. in his new novel, Lovecraft Country, which is set in uh, the States, in, the, in Chicago in the 1950s. Right. And is, Lo- is Lovecraft from the perspective of two black uh, families. And is both, I mean, it, 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 it's an examination of Lovecraft an examination of race, and of course, it provides historical information. I had no idea there was something as sadly necessary as the Safe Negro Travel Guide, but which is apparently a real thing. It was, it was a real thing. There are two books like that, where you places to avoid and and hotels and uh, and gas stations and restaurants that will actually serve you if you're if you're an African American. Yeah. So there's there's the so Lovecraft, there's Lovecraft Country, which actually came out before the Ballad of Black Tom. Uh-huh. and is in a very similar space. It was reviewed very positively in Locus by Tim Pratt, and I've, I've got my, co- my copy here in front of me to read, and in fact, I'm, we might be talking about talk, discussing it on the round table this year. It looks like a fascinating book. Yeah, it's part of uh, an interesting trend also of, of finding... Uh, this, this seems to be a novel in which... Lovecraft is featured as a character rather than a redaction of a Lovecraft story like the little vowel thing. But there was also the uh, novel last year about, uh, about Asimov and Heinlein and, 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 and the camp called Amazing, Astounding, something like that. I can't you, didn't you see remember it, didn't the, hear about it, no. Um, well, it, it, it was a novel. Hmm? It does ring like Vade Bell. I actually was just going to say there is another Lovecraftian thing. Ah, okay, what's that? Coming out in August this year at the um, at Worldcon, in fact, it should be launched for Worldcon, is a major new Kids Johnson novella from Tor.com called yes. The Dream Quest of Velvet Bow, which, in all in, you know, sort of um, declaration of conflict of interest, I'm the editor and acquiring editor for. And mm-hmm. it is a major re examination of Lovecraft that places women into the story. I mean, the thing that's been talked about most through the whole period of the World Fantasy Award issues with, with uh, Lovecraft has been his anti-Semitism and his racism. But yeah. his stories, and particularly the, the one that's, that's in the frame here, The Dream Quest of Unknown Kadath, are completely allied women from the picture at all. It's not that yes. they're sexist, it's that they're just some magically in a world that has no women at all. And so this takes that story, inverts it, and retells it from a woman's perspective. Mm-hmm. And I, well, I love it. I think it's a fascinating story. But it's interesting that this is a... First of all, this, this is something that attracts 
re- uh, writers enough that they want to revisit it, and that it's a rich enough toolkit to have that happen. I think it's not only a rich toolkit. I think the stories themselves are compelling. We've talked before about uh, what, I, what I at least think of as the stages of reading Lovecraft. You're reading him young enough, and you're just completely blown away. And then read him a few years later when you're an adult, and you're thinking, how could I have possibly enjoyed this? And then a few years on, well, I understand how I enjoyed this now, but I wish it were better. And I, I think there's something so compelling it's in, in Lovecraft's central mythology and in some of his imagery and in his just massive paranoia about the world that I think people want to tap into that power without, without in, a, in a way that doesn't uh, make it a kind of racist, nativist, anti-Semitic, uh, anti-immigrant, uh, you know, uh, failed patrician kind of attitude. So I think what all these things do is they, they attest to the power of, of much of what Lovecraft did. Yeah, I think that's true. I think it's very true. And it's interesting that sort of... Well, it's, it's, it's interesting what attracts people to continue and what doesn't. For, there's, there's been something about the Lovecraft mythos from its... or the Cthulhu mythos particularly, since its mm. early days. And maybe this is just a historical pattern as well as the power of the work. I mean, uh, when August Derleth became involved in the Lovecraft oeuvre, uh, largely after Lovecraft's passing, is my recollection, mm-hmm. then uh, he began continuing continuations or whatever else and so it's like it became okay to write lovecraft most of the other major much most of the other major things like that it's not okay to write yeah no one's going to write the write tolkien country um probably not that's a good point i i I think lovecraft it's it's a i think it's an american idea for one thing lovecraft represented a kind of failed new england aristocracy who was surrounded by uh, this kind of dark, really frightening history. Uh, interestingly enough, the most Lovecraftian movie I've seen this year, which is not saying a lot since I've seen maybe three movies this year, was one I saw last week called The Witch, which is set in 1630 New England. And the, 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 it, it's a supernatural story that becomes much more Hawthorne-like than Lovecraft-like. But you get a sense of the authenticity that really was there in some of Lovecraft's best stories. And I, and I think the reason you don't see that in England as much, you don't see stories about Arthur Mackin or Tolkien, is because this sort of sense of, um, I don't know, the failed aristocracy is the only word I can think of, is a very American theme. You could make an argument as a scholar that there are connections between Lovecraft and Melville, or Lovecraft and James Fenimore Cooper. Um, probably more so than you could have uh, making connections between Lovecraft and the classic Gothic novelists. I think that's probably true. I think that's probably very true. Um, yeah, I'm not sure where we're, where we're going to go go with this. I mean, I, it has, has this, this for a question. Can you think of, and there's an element of science fiction in Lovecraft, can you think of more science fictional examples of continuations of universes and universes that became, you know, fictional universes that became uh, tool, you know, playgrounds for other creators or more fantasy ones, do you think? I, I, I don't know that fantasy... Fantasy worlds seem to belong to um, authors in a way that science fiction worlds don't. To some extent, if you create, let's say, a Heinlein future, you create a 24th century based on Heinlein, I think what happened 
during that period of science fiction history, from the 40s on up to the 80s, was that other authors more or less thought, Heinlein's kind of nailed this, so we kind of have to use his future. Um, you don't find anybody trying to write... You, you, I should not say anybody. You find very few people trying to write stories within the context of Cordenweider Smith's instrumentality, because that's too quirky. Well, okay, um, is it too quirky, or is it a a manifestation of the author's approach to copyright? Copyright? Copyright. Really? Explain that. I'm not well, sure. I mean, okay. Uh, Lovecraft died in the 1930s. Right. The, the, the Cthulhu mythos is out of copyright. You can write there and create there without fear yeah. of... of you know, uh, legal ramifications. You know, you, you can't sit down and write a, uh, I don't know, a, a Stephen Donaldson's The Land kind of story without, I would imagine, Stephen Donaldson taking some umbrage at that. It could be true. I mean, it, uh, I mean you're absolutely right. If, if Lovecraft had thought to trademark Cthulhu and Yogg-Sothoth and Nyarlathotep, uh, his estate would be making tons of money off of all these little knit things you buy at conventions. Uh, but I don't think that uh, at, at the time Lovecraft was writing, he knew he had his followers, but I don't think the idea of a commercial franchise was something that was going to amount to anything in his mind, or for that matter, in Robert E. Howard's mind. Oh, I'm, um, I'm sure that's, that's, that's true, but you would have thought that basic copyright protection would have you know, protected a lot of it. Up, mm. up until a certain period, I don't know, given the various changes to American and international copyright law, where everything cuts off these days. You know, you, you just do see some odd examples, you know, like James Bond is out of copyright in Canada, but not in the United States. Yeah, there are odd things like that that happen, and I suspect uh, we would need, we would need a, a scholar of Lovecraft like S.T. Joshi to tell us exactly what the situation was, whether to some extent... Sure. Uh, Durleth and Wandre, by founding Arkham House, somehow took possession of Lovecraft's concepts. Because certainly Durleth and his his friends and followers felt no compunctions at all about writing more Lovecraft stories, or in his case, apparently, again, this is based on Joshi's scholarship, apparently rewriting substantial chunks of Lovecraft stories uh, and, in order to list himself as a collaborator. Hmm. Yes, you see, that would not go down... I mean, that, 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 that actually you know, rubs me the wrong way, so I could, I could only imagine it would go down quite poorly these days if you were to attempt such a thing. I mean, I also don't know if it's that for, for a lot of the more clearly copyrighted and trademarked works of fiction that potentially would attract a lot of collaborators or uh, people riffing on them, that, that stays sort of to some degree underground in the non-commercial fan fiction world you know, it's like I imagine there's endless, say, Pern fan fiction. I would not be surprised at that. Yeah, no doubt of that, yeah. Uh, and I don't mean that in any way disparaging. I love Pern and all that kind of thing. I just think I imagine that the, the, the McCaffrey state would protect it quite closely for commercial reasons. And so that's and, and how that would go on. Then Darkover was virtually an industry of fan fiction. Yeah. I mean, I do wonder, actually, the interesting thing with, with copyright is, does copyright release a work to be riffed on so late that by and large nobody wants to anymore by the time you can and it's only a rare work where that where it would be the case well one of the uh, examples of expired copyrights where people just riffed and riffed and riffed is H.G. Wells 
we were talking about Baxter earlier, and uh, there, I have mixed feelings about Baxter's long sequel to The Time Machine, The Time Ships. But then there was an anthology of, I forgot who did it, of War of the World sequels and, and yeah. alternates and so forth. I think Kevin so Anderson did it. Kevin Anderson, you're absolutely right. And there was a very funny Connie Willis story in which Emily Dickinson meets the Martian invasion. Uh, there were other sorts of things. Obviously, there's no sense at all that uh, that H.G. Wallace is a sacred text anymore. But I mean, I, I want to know where the cutoff is. I mean, there was an interesting thing happened quite recently. I don't know if you were pe- if you noticed it go by, but mm. someone has posted an entire scanned run of If magazine. On, I heard about it. yeah on, at, on uh, onto archive.org, you know the Internet Archive, mm. the Wayback Machine, whatever you call it. And I think they're assuming that it's all out of copyright, that somehow it's all magically lapsed. And I, you know, there were some complications because the company that owned If went bankrupt and it was acquired. And, you know, apparently there, there was a thought, though I've subsequently investigated this myself, that the If contracts acquired all rights in perpetuity to the stories. And this includes, I think, some, some major works of fiction from major writers. Right. So I'm surprised there hasn't been more discussion about it because I did investigate this, Gary, in my capacity as someone who's involved with the estate of R.A. Lafferty. Mm-hmm. Because R.A. Lafferty um, obviously sold stories to If. And if the investigations are correct, it would appear that, in fact, no, the copyrights haven't lapsed and these are in violation of copyright. There was some question about that because if was under the same umbrella as Galaxy at that time, if I recall correctly. Yeah. And uh, I remember doing the Library of America, the Fritz Library is a big time. Apparently, somebody discovered, and I can't attest to this because it wasn't me, that the copyright on the Galaxy serialization of the big time, in fact, had lapsed. Um, and. The, the, I mean, nobody had, had tried to take advantage of it, and, and it turned out the Library of America did not take advantage of it. There was another copyrighted edition. But there was something really complicated that happened in the late 50s in um, the Galaxy Publishing Company. And I, whether that's true that those things are in copyright or maybe not, or maybe people thought they weren't, I don't know. But you're probably right. Putting an entire run of a magazine online is almost certainly going to have to violate somebody's copyright. Oh, yes. I mean, in this case, I'm confident about it because in our, in, in our case, all the copyrights were deliberately reassigned to Lafferty uh, afterwards. Mm-hmm. And also, from, from our investigations, there were never any contracts. They were just purchase orders. Ah, really? Yeah. <laughs> Which is like, oh. And I didn't know that Judy Lynn Benjamin wrote for, uh, worked for IF. I didn't know that either. I thought Frederick Pohl was editing it during its uh, glory years, which weren't very many. This wasn't in the capacity of uh, editor. This would have been editorial assistant work or whatever else. Yeah. Because the purchase orders for the R.A. Lafferty stories were signed by Judy Lynn Benjamin. Hmm. Isn't that interesting? A little little side footnote. A little bit of semi-history here on the Cood Street Podcast. Well, it's a kind of history we can put another plea out for this. um, uh, Since you mentioned Judy Lynn Delray and we... Uh, are talking about uh, a couple of weeks ago, obviously, uh, David Hartwell. Why People should have asked people these questions when they had a chance, to some extent. I mean, I didn't know that. We don't know the history of the field from Judy Lindell Ray, because 
not enough people ask her enough questions. We don't know as much as we should from Betty Ballantyne. And certainly, and I wrote this in a piece that um, I think will appear in the New York Review of Science Fiction, none of us who knew Hartwell asked him enough questions. And sure. it's pieces of history like this where years later you come across uh, a purchase order from If Magazine and find, find out, okay, so this whole sort of structure of publishing that eventually leads to Del Rey Books and this enormous impact had something to do with what was going on in If Magazine in the 50s. I think it's fascinating. It absolutely is, and it makes the few books that, that, you know, that are done all the more valuable. I mean, you know, you've got the Elvira Zinus Amaro book that's coming out later this year that's The Conversations with Bob Silverberg. And that's really important because, mm-hmm. I mean, Bob's someone who has lived through everything in the field. And um, remembers it. Yeah, and so it'll be, no doubt be fascinating. And I think there was... Uh, well, the, the the Michael Swanwick book on Gardner Dozois is a similar kind of a thing. The problem right. is that they're sufficiently on commercialist books usually that they have to be labors of love. Well, absolutely, and there's nobody really trying to uh, to do that. I mean, one of the things that we've been asking authors to do in this University of Illinois series is to include an extensive interview with the authors. But in some cases... Uh, unless you have an interview with the author that was in the can before the book was written, you're not going to be able to interview Frederick Pohl or Ray Bradbury or certainly not John Brunner. No. Um, so, I mean... So, so, so what's the motivation for people to do these things? I mean, there's, there, there's, there's a huge amount of... I, I was, I'm sure we were all thinking about this because of the Hartwell tragedy. There's a huge amount of the history of science fiction and fantasy that's disappearing every day. Oh, sure. Um, I guess it's passion, because it's not going to be money. I mean, it's like somebody really should go and, and sort of sit down with Barry Malsberg every day for six months and get his history of the field down. You know? mm-hmm. uh, and I'm sure that there are many, many other equivalents. I mean, one of the problems, of course, and this is a, a reasonable sensitivity as well, is that there, there's history that may exist that maybe shouldn't be told. You know, uh it's all very well to talk about. Isn't it interesting that Judy Lynn Del Rey had some administrative role in If Magazine? That's an interesting footnote. Yeah. Um, but it's not necessarily anybody's business that so-and-so was sleeping with so-and-so in 1942. Um, probably not, although certainly fandom enjoyed those rumors when they had them. And from what I, from what I heard, it was the early 50s. It was probably more adventurous than the early 40s. Yeah. That kind of thing is gossip. Yeah, fan gossip has always been uh, part of the, of, of the field, simply because these are admired figures in the field. My one caveat to that would be if you could find there's some connection to fiction, if certain kinds of fiction got written um, because of friendships or alliances and so forth and so on. But you know, just as, as, as celebrity gossip, it's, it's, it's pretty much useless, I agree. So that's an interesting thing. This, of course, is never not what we meant to ramble about, Gary. No, this is not what we were going to start. We were going to start looking forward to 2016 or whatever year it is. But no, uh, you, you can't look forward to 2016 now, Gary. It's March. You know, I mean, uh, <laughs> you can look forward to 2017 or the rest of 2016, but we're, you know, two, two and a chunk months in now. I know. Did you? I, I, I don't know if you have this reaction, but I, I realized three or four days ago that it was March, and I was up until that point thinking, I've got lots of time to do all the stuff I need to do. Yeah, I've, no. got a, I've, 
got to do some moving things here. I've got to move things out of one storage locker into another. I had a couple of essays to write, and, and it was coming up. And I kept thinking, it's only the beginning of 2016, so I've got plenty of time. And then all of a sudden, I realized it's March. It's, not, it's no longer the beginning of 2016. <laughs> a good chunk of 2016 is over, and I am really in trouble now. That's right. I mean, I was trying to explain this to someone. I get criticized often for living too far into the future. Yeah, because it's like, well, you know, I'm already thinking about next year and the year after in some ways. It's partly because you're working on books and you've got to deliver them at a certain time. And it's partly because you're planning travel. I mean, we're, before we started this conversation, we are talking about how we are going to be in Kansas City in August. And I still haven't bought my plane tickets for August, and I need to. Uh, mm-hmm. We were talking about how you were going to go to Columbus for World Fantasy Convention, and I'm not. And how you were looking at your arrangements there. And I've made it clear that I'm going to go to uh, Finland next year for the World Con, and so mm-hmm. as, as have you. So there will be plans for that to discuss. But it means you're already thinking that far ahead. And it's like, I've got to deliver another book, Gary, in a week and a bit. Oh, and, dear. Yeah, oh, yeah. And <laughs> which is good on one hand. It's like I'm delivering the book. This is Drowned Worlds. And then another book lines yeah. up behind that in June or July with um, Bridging Infinity. And then it'll be time for the best of the year. And it's just like, uh, 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 I want to go hide in a corner. I know the world, the world is made up of deadlines. Without, without being at all unsympathetic, because you are one of the people that gives me a deadline once a month, uh, you do, you're, put, you're bringing this on yourself, Jonathan. You've chosen to do these books. You've solicited these stories. You have the fortunate good taste and persuasive ability to get good stories from from your authors but these are all deadlines that you created for yourself aren't they oh i know i know i mean we won't go into the fact that it helps sort of you know keep the the family financial ship of state afloat as well gary so it's not entirely not entirely without some degree of motivation if you like beyond simply loving being involved uh because you're right i mean as as it is i continue to have plans to restructure my year i mean i need to have some serious conversations with at least one or two groups that i work with to kind of go this thing that i'm doing then i don't want to do that no more so that that will be an interesting set of conversations without a doubt but anyway it will be uh the the structure of the year is is the thing we were going to talk about if you like uh because normally when we've podcast in previous years we discuss the news as it comes out and discussing stale news really isn't the most interesting thing but we'll maybe run over a few things that have come along um just so that we can have name checked them and made a comment after the fact if nothing else true you know because we'll start maybe we we agreed we'd start in february as an arbitrary point because that's usually when we come back from our hiatus um now that we have a hiatus and the first thing that came out was the locust recommended reading list of which I don't have much to say other than that it's out and that everybody should go and you know, vote for the Locus Awards. You can fill out the absolutely overwhelmingly long form on the Locus website that intimidates the hell out of me and probably everybody else. Um, yeah, that's true. Uh, I actually sat and, down to do my, my, my recommended reading voting this week and had to abandon it because I didn't have time to get to the end of the form. Uh, that happens to me a lot too. As a matter of fact, I confess not having filled out that form myself. Um, but the locus, the, the locus recommended list, which is, uh, I know a lot of people use it in a way I do. That uh, that when you're making nominations for the Hugo Awards, which you can only do for about three more weeks after this, uh, I 
I don't. I, I, I use the locus recommended list as a reminder of things uh, because when I get down to categories that I don't know as well as others, I don't know uh, the short story and the novelette category as well as I should. But looking at the list will jog something in, in my memory. So it's a good kind of memory jogger for people who are making nominations for um, yeah for the Hugo Awards. Absolutely, you know, and and in the I mean, you're right. It's I think just a, a whisker under four weeks that are left between now and the 31st of March when the mm-hmm. when the Hugos close. So you know, no, nominate, you know, read, vote, nominate, do, do all that stuff. And I mean, and a naked plug. You know, you're listening to our podcast. We don't ask you for money. We just ask you for love, don't we, Gary? Absolutely. We don't. We we we, we will send your money back if you send it to us. No, we won't. No, we won't. Uh, we won't send you. But money. but certainly, certainly, if if you if you believe that we uh, earn a nomination for a Hugo Award, we would not reject it if it happens. Help us get into the Hugo you know, nominees party. We like that party, Gary. Yeah, and it'll be fun. <laughs> this is pathetic. Can we stop now? <laughs> yeah, now we're begging. Now we're begging. No, 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 no. no. Let's move. Is... <laughs> okay. Uh, the Crawford Award, the Gary Award that, that, that people help out with every year, you, you, that was announced on the 2nd of February. That was announced that long ago, yeah. It was, uh, and Kaya Shanti Wilson won that for uh, Sorcerer of the Wild Deeps. And uh, unfortunately, won't be able to be at the, uh, the ceremony to accept it, but. Again, that's an award. I, I, I reemphasize this uh, every time I present the award, which I've been doing for decades now, that I don't have any part in choosing the award. What I do is I choose the people who choose the award, which is a subtle way of pushing tastes in a certain direction, I suspect. Um, but this is a group of people that come up with very interesting, um, surprising um, Nominees, and, and, and sometimes we find things that will, I'm guessing, have more substantial impact after the nomination. For example, one of the books on our shortlist was Indra Das's novel, The Devourers. Yeah. Um, which last year, it's, it's, it's a last year, but it was only published in Penguin India, I believe. Yes, that's right. Uh, and the American edition is, is coming out this year. And it was a very uh, well thought of novel. Yeah. And I. Recommending it for people who um, who see it when it uh, comes out. Yeah, and it, 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 the Crawford is a fantasy award, which is a nice thing to have in this world. We, yeah, half the the, the fantasy, you know, the science fiction awards are also cover fantasy now, and yeah, it's, it's just nice to have something like this, and particularly for you know first books. I mean, it's a, I like that. It's what I like about the award, and uh, certainly of the six, I think it was shortlistees. There was at least three that I thought were genuinely terrific. And, well, one of them was, 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 was Ken Lose the Grace of Kings. Yes. Uh, and I, to be honest, I've not read all of them. The other, the other finalists for the award were Natasha Pulley's The Watchmaker of Filigree Street. I mentioned The Devourers. Um, and Seth Dickinson's The Traitor Baru Cormorant. And finally, Adrian uh, Salt or Kelt, I don't have pronounced her name, uh, called The Daughters. Yep. Um, and it's a novel I don't know at all. But, but one of the things is you have 12 or, or, or 13 people who read widely in the field. Uh, they will discover things. And one of the things I take some pride in with the Crawford Award is that if um, a book of short stories by Zen Cho, last year's winner, is only published in Malaysia, we'll track it down. And in this case, one of the nominees was uh, published only in India. 
So we make an effort of making an international award out of that because it's called the International Association of Fantastic. And that's always a challenge. Well, I think one of the challenges for your group next year will be deciding you know, so, some sort of uh, fa- you know, uh, boundaries around a few things like you know, the Charlie Jane Anders book we talked about on the Coot Street Roundtable the other week, All the Birds yeah. in the Sky. Is that eligible? That will be interesting. It'll be an interesting discussion. I mean, it's one of the arguments that uh, there, there, there are elements in a lot of these things, um, well, a lot of novels, not just, not just uh, uh, Crawford-winning novels. You look at something like Nnedi Okorafor's uh, Who Fears Death, which is a fantasy novel, but it has old computers in it and, and water-capturing devices and science fiction elements in it. The Kaya Shanti Wilson novel could be in a distant, far distant future. Is Gene Wolfe's, you know, it, it, it's something that reads a lot like Gene Wolfe, but not as overtly science fictional, eligible. And then you have the problem, as with the Charlie Jane Anders novel, where it clearly has a science fictional pattern of development parallel to a fantasy pattern of development. And it, it's, it, it'll be interesting discussions, absolutely. You know, does one element of fantasy turn a science fiction novel into a fantasy novel? I don't know. I mean, you know, I'm not the administrator who, who calls the shots, Gary. Mm-hmm. Who will have to make the decision, quick. Gary. I, I will have to make... Well, I mean, I'm not going to overrule the will of all of our judges and nominators and that sort of thing, but... Uh, <laughs> uh-huh. the, uh, the next I've, 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 mm-hmm. I've made judgment calls as to eligibility. Yeah. The next one off the list that I'm, I'm looking at is uh, the 2015 uh, BSFA Awards, the British Science Fiction Awards, which were announced at the end of the first right. week of February. And I really liked the novel list, I must say. I really, really did. Um, there was Chris Beckett's Mother of Eden, Aliette de Bodard's House of Shattered Wings, Dave Hutchison's Europe at Midnight, Ian MacDonald's Lunar New Moon, Justina Robson's Glorious Angels. I'll, I'll encourage you to go off and track down the rest of the list if you're not familiar with it. What I really like about it, Gary, is that it acknowledges a lot of the British work that we t- that can be, get overlooked otherwise. Absolutely. As it should. And I think that it, it, it also, and this has impressed me in the past about the BSFA list, it's a it's an eclectic list. There are lots of different kinds of novels on it, in addition to not only representing, I think, uh, what's going on in Britain better than, than some other ballots do, but there doesn't seem to be a political agenda with this. There doesn't seem to be a nomination process that favors hard science fiction or favors uh, trendy science fiction. It's uh, it, something which is a fantasy novel like Elliot de Bordard's is basically up against a completely non-comparable novel like Ian MacDonald's Luna. Um, you can't say one of those novels is better than the other because they're trying to do different things, but they should be on the same ballot because of what they're trying to do, which is unique and separate from the other nominees. Absolutely, and it's it's great to see works like Dave Hutchison's Europe at Midnight, which doesn't get any real play in the United States. Yeah, they're uh, not. Getting, yet- you know, getting you know, you know, recognition. The next one I have is the Asimov's Readers Awards finalists. Okay, uh, I don't have which you, you don't have in front of you, and we're not going to go through. But I will say, um, go to the Locus website and look through the news for the list. There's some great oh. novellas and novelettes listed. Um, I'm going to be completely biased and say the one that I would really twist your arm about is try and get a hold of a copy of Greg Egan's The Four Thousand the Eight Hundred. It's one of his terrific hard SF novellas. This time mm-hmm. themed around. Um, 
immigrants and immigration. And it's not going to be available available digitally. It's not in any of the year's bests, not because of quality, but because of uh, rights issues. So uh-huh. if, you, if you can find it, do find it. It's a terrific story. I don't know if it's going to end up in the Hugo Packard, voters packet if it gets onto the ballot, but it is easily, at least in terms of science fiction, one of the very, very top science fiction novellas of the year. Yes, and that's why it happens to be one of the few that I read because for some reason I have a copy of that. Yeah. There were the Dittmar Award finalists um, nom- uh, announced in February as well. Probably the uh-huh. only shout-out I would give here would be to Jonathan Strahan and Gary K. Wolf for the Kootenai Podcast who are nominated for Best Fan Publication in Any Medium. It's certainly worth thanking the nominators for and again we direct you all to that list there are some great stuff I mean Lisa Hannett's novel a Trent Jamison novel Glenda Lark Amanda Pilar and Scott Westerfeld Margot Lanigan Deborah B and Cody Zeros we talked to them on the podcast Uh. bunch of short fiction dominated by Deborah Kalin who was uh, her collections on the Locust recommended reading list came out from 12th Planet a book called Cherry Crow Children and that seems to have been really really warmly received Um, there's the Carnegie Medal I'm only going to touch on that because it's nice to see Terry Pratchett getting recognized and wonderful to see Frances Harding with the lie tree getting recognized. I love her work. She's the best. And she also won the Macmillan Award for the Costa Book of the She absolutely did. She's an incredible talent, and I'm excited. I th- I'm pretty sure. I may have my facts. I hope I have my facts right. She's currently writing an adult fantasy novel for Joe Monty. Excellent. So that's really exciting. I mean, really, really exciting. The Aurealis Awards World uh, not finalists were nominate were announced as well. It's a very long list, not something that we're going to go through right now. Um, and you obviously don't have it in front of you either, Gary, so oh. that you can't really comment. So I'll merely say shout out to a few of the friends of the podcast are on the list: James Bradley for Clade, um, a wonderful book that hasn't got the play outside of Australia that it richly deserves. Uh, Sean Williams for Twin Maker Fall. And for his short story, All the Wrong Places, which is from my book, Meeting Infinity. Um, I also note that our, our good buddy, um, Garth Nix, is up, as mm-hmm. are a whole bunch of wonderful people. I mean, Elisa Krasnestein, of course, is all over all of these lists. And, and I should have mentioned earlier that she's also up for the BSFA for Letters to Tiptree. Letters to Tiptree, which was an important... It's, it's interesting. Probably that was the most important publishing event Directly in celebration of Alice Sheldon's centennial. Mm. Um, so congratulations and thanks some. Th- th- thank you, Elisa, and um, for for at least having some recognition. That it seems to me that that centennial came and went much more rapidly than I would have hoped it would. Yes. Pro- in uh, the, around the seventeenth of February, there was an important news announcement, Gary. It was that the SFWA had finally buckled under the pressure of the relentless Cood Street podcast campaign and announced C.J. Cherry as a CIFWA grandmaster? I'm sure they wouldn't have done it without us. That's the position I'm taking. I, 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 nobody's going to contradict us. I mean, it's, it's one of those well, things where you... it's only you and me here, Gary. There's no one to contradict us. <laughs> That's true. Absolutely. <laughs> but irrespective it's, it's, of what you deserved. But it, it, it richly deserved, and, and and the response to it was not uh, was was not really, and shouldn't have tried to give any credit to what we were saying. The response I saw was generally, "How could we have not done this before?" Um, Absolutely, it's the same kind of thing. 
comes up every year. It comes up every year with the World Fantasy Awards when I've been a judge there uh, only once, but I've talked to other people, that somebody's name comes up, and the reason this person hasn't gotten a Life Achievement Award or a Grandmaster Award or, uh, or whatever they call it at World Horror, the reason the person hasn't gotten one is because everybody assumed he or she must have one already. And I wonder if some of that had to be in play here. Yes. Uh, uh, yeah, some of it is there's always that list of people to get through, I guess. And then, yes, it's like somebody... It, it, I guess the, the, the odd thing in this case is I'm completely unaware of what the process is to select a Grandmaster for SFWA. You know, I don't know if there's I... a voting. I don't know whether um, uh, somebody sort of puts names in the hat and pulls them out. I've got, I literally have no idea, so I can't comment on it. But they got it right this time. I've seen a lot of talk about the right entry points into Sherry's oeuvre if you haven't read her. Uh, many of, and many of those people have it about right. Probably the best stuff I've seen written about Sherry in terms of accessibility would be Joe Walton's pieces on Tor.com. Right. Um, and they, they do talk about great places to enter, whether it's like 40,000 in Gehenna or whether it's uh, Dambolo Station or whether it's... Uh, so one of the more gained books into the fantasy worlds, or the Paladin, if you can find a copy. And I think it may even serve to bring of some of... I mean, most of Cherry's work in print, but it may serve to bring some of it back as well. Which is a and good some, of it is, some of it is, is recognizably classic work. I wonder... I mean, the, 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 the one that... And I, I did not follow up nearly as well as I should have on her later works for various reasons, as I admitted on the podcast we did with... with, with uh, Joe about Sherry's work, but Down Below Station strikes me as being a, a, a genuine classic in the field, and I wonder if somebody reading it for the first time today would have the same kind of uh, this looks familiar reaction that you have uh, when you first read, I don't know, uh, an early Asimov robot novel or something. In other words, so much of what she did in Down Below Station has become standard practice in space opera that or in what became the new space opera, that I wonder if the book will still have the sense of newness that it had when, when you and I read it the first time. I, I genuinely don't know. I mean, you can see the influence of Cherry's science fiction, that particular kind of science fiction she wrote or writes, that uh, dense, uh, elusive, uh, politically and economically uh, well-constructed kind of stories that has social... has social science background as much as it has hard science background built into taut exactly. thriller kind of stories I mean the great example has to be right now The Expanse and the James S. Corey stuff which is clearly you know, heavily influenced by Cherry um, but I, I think it's well enough done that it remains fresh I think an Expanse yeah. reader picking up down below wouldn't think they're reading some dusty old book the only thing that is omitted from her work that's omitted from almost everybody's work when you read hard, well, science fiction from the pre-2000s is the interaction of social media and handheld devices. But everything else is there. Right. And I think when you read Signe Mallory running through you know, the Norway and, and running, you know, basically running her ship in a, in a military conflict situation, it remains as fresh and as compelling as, as any science fiction out there. That would be my sense. I intend to go back and try to reread it before the Nebula Awards, um, which are, in fact, here in Chicago in um, a couple of months. And I suppose that leads us to the next yes, set of yes. 
the, Neb- the Nebula Awards the point- were, ballot was nominated on was was came out the twenty first of February. It wasn't entirely right. contiguous with my experience of the reading year, Gary, but it was an interesting ballot. Um, it was interesting for me because of some what seemed to me to be surprising omissions, um, and maybe these are maybe these are not books that that resonated as well with the science fiction community as they might have. Stan, Kim Stanley Robinson's Aurora, uh, Paolo Bacigalupi's The Water Knife. Um, I, when those novels came out, I almost assumed they would end up on a Nebula or a Hugo ballot uh, a year later. And here's the Nebula. Of course, Anne Leckie's Ancillary Mercy, we could certainly expect that. And I think it's reasonable to expect N.K. Jemison's The Fifth Season and probably Ken lose the grace of kings. Beyond that, uh, it's it's an interesting ballot. It, it, um, it certainly is. And actually, in the beyond that group, the book that I'm most enthusiastic about, though I hope it wins the World Fantasy Award, is uprooted by Naomi Novik, mm-hmm. which, I, which I think is a genuinely terrific book. I love that book. But I share I share your views on on um, Aurora particularly, which I am deeply perplexed to see not on the list. I don't know. I, I, it's, it's it's possible that uh, it's impossible. It's impossible to guess why a book is not on a list. Uh, with Hugo, you can kind of do it. The, the one one theory which is worth floating, not for very long, is that is Aurora too much of a balloon puncturing novel to take one Maybe. of the favorite one of the favorite tropes of science fiction and basically say it won't work. I, that may be the case. I mean, it may be the case, Gary. I don't know. And you'd also have to allow that The Water Knife uh, it, by Paolo Bacigalupi isn't the cheeriest book in the world. So no. whether that had some impact, I honestly don't know. I mean, I can say that I heard lots of good things about Ancillary Mercy dur- during the year and read it and liked it. I haven't read yet the fifth season by Nora Jemison, but only heard good things about it and she'd been nominated before. So it can't, it's not remotely a surprise. Can Lose the Grace of Kings it was one of those books everyone was waiting for, so that's not a surprise. Right. I've read the others. I mean, I'll be frank with you. I mean, I've not read them, so I can't comment on the Lauren Sean, the Charles Gannon, the Fran Wilde. Though I've no, heard I mean, good things about the Fran Wilde particularly, so that's not particularly surprising. Novella's really strong, though. Really strong. Okay, if you know these better than I do, I'm. I'm I know them all. Them. Yeah, I mean, there are a couple others I would have put in. I mean, I I honestly feel the omission of the. Uh, Greg Egan's story is unfortunate. I think it's a major story for the year, and I'll continue to hound on about that. Uh, I also wonder whether length considerations of the definition of novellas disadvantaged Kaya Shante Wilson's Sorcerer of the Will Deeps, and whether it disadvantaged uh, Elizabeth Hand's novella as well. Mm-hmm. However, Binti is terrific. The Bone Swans of Annandale by uh, C.S.E. Kooning is wonderful. Um, I really like Eugene Fisher. I love the Usman Malik story, which is in my year's best. I love the Kelly yes. Robson story, which is in my year's best. And I really like the, the Beth Cato as well. So it's a very strong novella category. One or two things missing, um, but it's interesting. Um, the, the, the novelette category, I'm not going to go through them one by one. The novelette and the short story categories overlap less, but there are some of my favorite stories of the year in there. I love the Tamsin Muir story that's up for novelette. I love the fact that Michael Bishop's up for the Nebula again and is writing more. 
Um, the short story category, the Naomi Kritzer, the Alyssa, Alyssa Wong, the Amal Motar, the Martin Shoemaker, the Sam Miller, all great stories. As, I mean, the, and the David Levine is a very good story as well. I mean, the problem with this is when you praise one, it sounds like you're somehow inversely damning another, which is not my intention. There's nothing on this list that I've read that I don't think is unworthy. What I do have a feeling is there's one or two other stories that I, or works that I also thought were worthy. And then, of course, there's the auto mission, Gary. Then that would be? It is interesting to see that the Lois McMaster Bujold novel from October of 2015 isn't on the list. And my guess, as it frequently comes out with lists like this that are announced early in the year, is that it simply wasn't widely enough read. Um, It's very hard to know exactly what happened. I mean, how widely it was read probably more accurately by the Nebula voting community within the time period, and the fact that I think people only realized it was eligible late in the piece. That may not have helped. I mean, I have have heard, uh, without any data to support it, that books published in November and December have less chance of getting awards that are nominated for in January and February. Yeah. Uh, and that would make sense. That would seem to be common sense in a way. Yeah. So, so look, that, that's all, all, all fine. We will see that what happens at the Nebulas in April, I think it is, isn't it, Gary? I believe it's in May this May. year. Okay, uh, May. But again, back here in Chicago, and it should be interesting and should yep. be fun. Since we're sort of moving towards the end of the year, I'm going to rush a little. A doff of the hat to our friend Garda Dozois, who was the recipient of the 2016 Edward E. Smith Memorial Award for Imaginative Fiction, a.k.a. the Skylark Award. So this is acknowledging him for his contribution to science fiction. It says, it's given to some person who, in the opinion of the membership, has contributed significantly to science fiction, both through work in the field and by exemplifying the personal qualities which made the late Doc Smith well-loved by those who knew him. And I think Gardner is a worthy recipient of almost any award, so I'm delighted to see that happen. I, I, I think one of the things that... Uh, it, it certainly celebrates his personality, his impact on the field. One of the things... And I didn't even think about this until I was rereading a couple of his short stories. One of the things you don't hear discussed much uh, is what a terrific short story writer he was mm. and is. Yes. And in fact, he has a new story coming out later this year. Just Excellent. sold one to FNSF, which is great. They announced the Kitschies towards the end of February. Um, I've never followed the Kitschies really closely, Gary. Maybe because they're called the Kitschies, I don't know. But the shortlists are, are very strong. With you know, The best uh, novel is uh, Margaret Atwood for The Heart Goes Last, along with Europe at Midnight by Dave Hutchinson, The Fifth Season by Nora Jemison, The Thing Itself by Adam Roberts, and Re- The Reflection by Hugo Wicken, Wilkin. And another great example of with the BSFA Award uh, bringing in work that might not otherwise get promoted widely um, outside of the UK. Uh, some major stuff, I mean, we've talked about Adam Roberts' book at great length on the roundtable, a, w- a wonderful novel, um, and the same for the, the Dave Hutchinson, and again, uh, lots of great, great things said about the Nora Jemison. Uh, there's some strong debuts on for, for what they're called The Golden Tentacle, that's a book by, called Black House by A. Igoni Barrett. I, I probably said that wrong. But the Grace Keepers by Christy Logan. Night Clock by Paul Malloy. The Shore by Sarah Taylor. And Making Wolf by Tade Thompson. Uh, and then there's some art awards as well. Uh, go look those up. It's just a matter of time. Not, not really sure. And I'm not really going to touch on others. I mean, there are, the Stoker Award ballot came out. 
the Spectrum Awards finalists were announced, the 2016 HWA Lifetime Achievement. All of them, lots of awards, lots of awarding and presenting. We're in the middle of award madness, Gary, and it's only going to continue all the way till October. Right. I have to admit, uh, we don't we don't cover horror a lot here, but and and when the um, when when the Bram Stoker nominations come out and, and and the Horror Guild and so forth, I confess to never having heard of a lot of the books that show up on those lists, um, unless they're from very familiar writers. There are some terrific horror writers out there, but I don't read enough of it to know who these other people are. I do think that the Lifetime Achievement Awards of the um, HWA. Uh, going to Alan Moore and um, oh, who's the other one? I don't know. Uh, oh. Sorry, that, that's terrible. Uh, George Romero, filmmaker. George Romero. Okay, now both of those are writers uh, in a sense. Romero write, wrote his own screenplays, and obviously Alan Moore wrote his own graphic novels. This, I'm not sure whether this is the first time that a major literary grandmaster award, where both of them have gone to people who are not prose writers. I don't know, but I think it's... And I wonder if that's saying, at least in the area of horror, that the influence of Alan Moore, which is undeniable throughout the fantastic genres and needs to be recognized, and the influence of George Romero, for whom we have almost 50 years of zombies to blame for, um, that, those, that, that non-literary influences have become um, central to the fiction being written in these fields now. Well, I think it's I think it's fair to say we've touched on in other discussions uh, on the podcast, Gary, that um, non-literary influences are overwhelmingly relevant now uh, in fantasy. The long, long, long in, uh, history of influence with gaming and whatever else, the influence oh, sure. of comics and graphic novels, the influence of film and television, the same in science fiction. You can see it all cycling through. Um, so it, it's it, in fact it goes to show just how absurd the arguments that used to happen at conventions back in the 60s, 70s, 80s, or whatever else, where you know you couldn't have gaming and comics and stuff in the, the convention because this was about science fiction or fantasy or whatever, and that was oh, yeah, really science fiction or, or fantasy or whatever, and you're going, well, nonsense. You, you now see that you couldn't discuss how creators were being influenced without discussing that stuff. Absolutely, and, 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 and the creators will cheerfully acknowledge that today. I mean, I've talked to very few show creators. I remember talking to D.B. Weiss at LunCon, for example. And yeah, their background is more likely to be in media and, and in gaming and in uh, graphic novels and so forth and so on. What's interesting is that the, the horror writers of America have identified specific creators. That is, Alan Moore is an auteur of what he does in the same way that George Romero is an auteur of what he does. And I think one of the reasons it's difficult to track this non-literary influence it's difficult to track who the artists are. Yeah. I mean, you can't really say, uh, despite what film scholars like to say, you can't really say that Ridley Scott by himself has had that much impact on science fiction. You can't really say that the Wachowski siblings have had, well, they may have had some influence. But, I mean, essentially, um, Ridley Scott was a very good visual director, but Blade Runner is not his work of imagination. That's true. There's another award I want you to explain to me, Gary, because I need you to explain this to me. Are you ready? Probably not. Speaking to you on, where are we now? Saturday, the 5th of March, 2016. As, as somebody who, is, who self-identifies as 
not an American citizen. Could mm-hmm. you explain your electoral situation to me for a moment? That was meant to be a long, pregnant pause. Um, <laughs> I I am tempted to. There there are friends of mine who at, are, are, they keep coming to me and saying, "Isn't this a science fiction novel?" And I so I start wanting to give them novels. The novel which I've been recommending to my friends is actually a, it's a terrifying novel by Octavia Butler called Parable of the Talents. But you can go back to. Uh, Sinclair Lewis says it can't happen here. Uh, you can you, you you can find antecedents for this. You can go back to Gore Vidal's novel called Messiah. There has been a series of novels. The most recent, probably being, I, I was going to say maybe the most recent being Octavia Butler, but John Kessel has done this as well. That's that argue there is this really dark Gothic underside to the American imagination, which could erupt unexpectedly in any particular given year. And I think what we're doing this year is realizing all these science fiction scenarios that that we were reading 10 and 20 and 30 and 40 and 50 years ago and thinking, thank God that can't really happen. And now we're thinking, oh. <laughs> That's pretty much what my friends and I are thinking. We're thinking, oh. Oh. Well, oh. You know, because you see, I was thinking the other day, I was talking to, to someone I know, and I was thinking... If you ask me to, to name the actually prescient science fiction writers that I can think of, none of them were ever Heinlein, Clark, Asimov, Pohl, or Benford, or any of those guys. Uh, they actually were, in retrospect, Ballard, Dick, Vonnegut, maybe Brunner. Yeah, maybe Brunner. And as I say, I'd, I'd add Octavia Butler to that list sure. because of her power. But, but there is this sense that uh, that, that, that permeates science fiction futures, starting with Heinlein, probably, maybe before that, but let's say Heinlein, that the future was fixable, that rationality would win out in the end. And one of the great themes of Heinlein was that that would happen. One of the great themes of Asimov was that reason would win out in the end. You know, psychohistory would work. And if we were in the middle of Asimov's psychohistory right now, we are dealing with the mule. Yeah. Uh, we're dealing. And, and at least Asimov had the had, had had the foresight to realize that no matter how well planned his futures were, there was going to be some complete crazed anomaly, and that's happening in American politics right now. I mean, it's happened in French politics, it's happened in Italian politics. It's just that nobody thought it could happen here, which takes us back to the title of that Sinclair Lewis novel about an American fascist, which he wrote, I think, in nineteen. 19- 37 or so called it can't happen here yeah what an interesting sort of cycle of things we've discussed Gary after all um, well the world's yeah. coming into science fiction in ways we didn't expect <laughs> here we are at, this, at the end of this 270th ramble and, and, I, and I think at least for this week we, we've managed to do our job once again we've managed to certainly entertain each other for an hour <laughs> can I just say I never counted on anything more but that's that's kind of how we started this whole thing, isn't it? It really is, and probably it's how ultimately when, when the audience has finally dwindled off, uh, how how we will remember it. But still, uh, there is one thing. Oh. I mean, to, to motivate everybody, by the way, to nominate the Coot Street Podcast for the Hugo Award, uh, not to sort of thing. 
if, if you do, we will come to the, to the, to the World uh, Science Fiction Convention in Kansas City. We're coming anyway. And we will uh, offer to do podcasts live in front of audiences. We have already. And so if, if, you, if you do sort of nominate us, you get all this extra bonus usness. Right, Gary? Well, be, well, we will post hours that we are hanging around at the bar, uh, willing to buy drinks for anybody who can show up with evidence that they voted for us. On the other hand, if you actually vote... That's a actually. If, if you can give us evidence that you've actually voted for us so that we win, we're willing to stay home and leave you in peace. That's even better. I like that idea. <laughs> no, I'm not. It'd be fun. I'm looking forward to Kansas City. We'll be in Kansas City. I think Kansas City is going to be a fun convention. We're, we're now waffling instead of rambling, so maybe this is the time to, to wind it up. As always, it's been fun. And we will talk to you again next week. I will talk to you again next week, and we'll find out what surprises we have in store then on the Good Street Podcast. Till then.